Good evening, everyone. If you have your Bible and would like to follow along tonight in our passage, we are studying 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25-33, the second part of verse Kings. And my title is Damnable Departure. Uh, I know the bulletin is a little bit different. They're both bad, uh, but mine is a little bit stronger. It's Damnable uh, Departure. In American history, you may remember something called the Prohibition Years. And I'm using this illustration because I find the commentary of uh, Davis often so humorous. He gives so many practical and good examples. But he talks about in the 1920s, the Prohibition Years. Uh, and I don't know if it was all of our country, just certain parts of our country at that time. But there were laws. Some of you may remember this better than me. You could not make transport or sell alcohol. It was all considered illegal. We know that some people still made moonshine, right, in violation of the law, and Davis calls that home-brewed elixir. And in using that illustration, I think it's very helpful because he says Jeroboam, right, one of the key figures we look at tonight, he creates a bootleg religion. It's a false religion, but certainly Jeroboam would have tried to justify that all of his innovations were perhaps honored and the Lord would be honored by those. Waltke says about this chapter, he says, or about Jeroboam, he says, quote, from its beginning to its end, the northern kingdom fails because none of its 20 kings is loyal to the Lord. That's a very sobering assessment. And remember last week when we looked at the first part of the chapter, This is the chapter in the Old Testament where Israel becomes two nations. So when we talk about Israel from this point forward in the rest of Kings, which is the rest of Old Testament history, it's referring to those ten northern tribes. It's not referring to the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah, they possess the promise that God made to David, and they are the southern, in many ways, lone kingdom, lonely tribe, all by themselves. And in the rest of Old Testament history, we never see these two uh, nations come back together as one nation. It is very, very sad. And of course, there are a lot of lessons for us to ponder and think about as we look at all of the false worship that's developed by these kings of Israel. Our first thought here is Jeroboam led Israel into idolatry. And of course, we want to in a moment, think about the context of this chapter, but Jeroboam reigned for quite some time. In in my view is he reigned for that length of time, not simply because he was like an idolater, because God made a promise to him, which we'll review in a moment. And God kept that promise. He reigned from 931 to 910 BC. Many years ago, I heard uh, someone describe Jeroboam as the first denominationalist. Just let that set in for a while. The first denominationalist. You know, today we have a lot of denominations. That's a foreign concept. I believe it's a foreign concept in all of the Bible. You can challenge me on that. I may be wrong. Uh, I just don't see any of that in the New Testament even. Uh, It's kind of convicting, like what has gone wrong over the years? Okay, A, do you remember the context in that Question has taken us back to chapter 11, and I'm going to turn there. I may read some of that in a moment, but all the way to 
our ending verse last week in 1224. In the immediate context of what transpired in the last days of King Solomon, it's important for us to remember, right, as we finish this part of chapter 12, the context. There are at least two, maybe three, major concerns that help us to understand and interpret what is taking place now in chapter 12. One concern is stated clearly in chapter 11. And you remember this, the prophet informed Jeroboam, who at that point was a, an excellent employee of King Solomon, right? He was like capable, he understood things, which is why we can't get him off the hook tonight in what he does. He was a very capable leader and Solomon promoted him. And the prophet informed Jeroboam, right? who when he heard the prophecy that he would be king of ten tribes. That is a prophecy that will come to pass. And, and Jeroboam knows that. I don't know if and when Solomon ever heard that. This prophecy testifies to the sovereignty of God over the affairs of humanity, specifically over human rulers. Another concern is the way the author describes the final days of Solomon and the way his son Rehoboam became, began to reign as king after Solomon died. Many commentators have pointed out, and this is probably, it's no coincidence, there is, there is a clear parallel, there's an echo between right Israel being rescued from Egypt with what is going on between these two kings and as the nation divides apart. There does seem to be an obvious comparison with the Exodus, that theme of redemption and deliverance from a very harsh leader. And now we see that taking place within Israel. Waltke says, are they free, the people of Israel? Are they free people in the promised land or slaves under harsh labor, a heavy yoke and a tyrant? He then goes on to make this keen observation based on the grammar of the text. He says, throughout the Old Testament, the expression heavy yoke, which is in chapter 11, is characteristically used of the oppression of Israelites by foreign rulers. And he gives eight examples of that. It's used in connection with Solomon as an indictment against him for imposing harsh labors on his own people. That was the immediate cause of the disagreement, right? With, with We don't want to have you to be our king, Rehoboam. Rehoboam's foolish, arrogant, and vulgar behavior at his coronation, including everything that went wrong, right? All of his actions reveals he was the one that was the Pharaoh-like leader. He was the harsh oppressor, oppressing, you know, soon-to-be leader of Israel. And that is why they rejected him. And we, we mentioned last week that Jeroboam, he appears as a Moses-like figure that's going to deliver ten of the tribes to freedom. And in the beginning, he seems to be like that. And so the nation is now split into two nations. It's a divided kingdom. One in the south, or 1.5, 1.2, uh, two in the south, and ten in the north. So the immediate cause of this tragic national division is the foolish behavior of Rehoboam. He is a harsh, pharaoh-like leader. He, he, he indicates that he's like that in his response to the northern tribes as they consulted together at his, what was supposed to be, a coronation. But the ultimate cause of this division was God's sovereign decision to tear the kingdom away from Rehoboam, right? 
because of Solomon's idolatry. So which cause, the immediate cause or the ultimate cause, is the correct answer? And of course, both are true. They are both true under God's kingship of this world. I think what Waltke says in the summary statement, I tried to give you one last week by Spurgeon. This one is really even better. He says, quote, The Lord again ironically uses human folly to fulfill his word and show his rule over Israel. And we're going to see that play, out, play itself out over and, and over again in uh, the book of Kings. I mean, maybe we're going to get so discouraged we're going to have to go to a different book. I don't know. We're going to say, I, we don't want to study this anymore. Let's go to something in the New Testament, like the book of Jude. <laughs> When this prophecy was given to Jeroboam, he was not told, uh, we as the readers are not told, how long this division amongst God's people will last. And Waltke later makes a comment that I read that he says, the prophets in the days of uh, after King Solomon dies, they seem to initially have thought that this division would not last long and it would be quickly healed, but they are going to be disappointed, aren't they? Where did he establish his new capital? Verse 25 tells us the answer. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel or Peniel. And uh, it appears he has a main capital and then a backup capital. Shechem was the location where the rebellion against Rehoboam began. That's where the coronation was supposed to take place. And if you have a map in your Bible, you may want to look like where are these located. This was led by Jeroboam. Shechem now becomes the new capital of a new nation. Jeroboam's first action was to establish, right, administrative centers. And so Shechem is the major one, and Peniel across the river, right, both significant sites, both common sense sites. Like this is where you would want to have your capitals if you're Jeroboam. Building Shechem, building it up, probably refers to building up an existing place into a more administrative center to set up his kingdom. The locations of both Shechem and Penuel, or Peniel, were significant for what should have been obvious choices, strategic reasons, historically, spiritually, and politically. Historically, both of these places played prominent roles in Israel's history. Both locations, the patriarchs were located there, and important things happened spiritually. This probably gave Jeroboam some standing as he associates his new capitals with these historic places that had spiritual significance. Did not God reveal himself to Abraham in this particular part of Canaan? Penuel was a place in Genesis 32 where Jacob wrestles with God, according to Genesis 32:30. Politically, these two locations were located along trade routes, and so they were important from that perspective for the economy and so on. Jeroboam's choice for this, these new capitals or administrative centers, they seem to be the obvious choice to make. C, did he reject God's promise to him? I mean, didn't God make a promise to him? In verses 26 to 27, we read this. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, 
and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. What do you think of that uh, self-talk in his mind, in his head? Right? That's, that's, that's the, the divine insight given us um, a window into what he's thinking in his mind about, you know, what is the state of my, king, my, my, my kingdom, my, my kingship? Verses 26 to 27 can be contrasted with the meeting that took place earlier between Jeroboam when he was a faithful servant of Solomon and the prophet Ahijah. And we read about that in chapter 11, verses 26 through 39. At that time, Jeroboam, right, he was a very capable man. Solomon approved of him in his administration. And Solomon it put him in charge of all of the forced labor. Solomon trusted him at that point. But we also know that Solomon must have found out about the prophecy because Solomon then tried to kill him. And what did Jeroboam do? He ran to Egypt and he found safe haven in Egypt until Solomon died. But in those verses of chapter 11, verses 26 to 39, if you want to glance at them to, to find out what happened there, God informed Jeroboam that he was chosen to be the king of these ten tribes. And remember the new garment and they ripped it up into all these pieces and he gave them to Jeroboam. Symbolically, God is going to give you unconditionally these ten tribes. You will be king. That's not a question. It's going to happen. And chapter 11 verse 36 emphasizes that unconditional promise from God. But God also gave Jeroboam a conditional promise in the very next verse of chapter 11, verse 38. He responded to, he communicates to Jeroboam through the prophet and says, right, if you obey me, then I will establish you and your kingdom as that of David. Now, I have no idea how God would have done that because it didn't happen. But God promises, if you obey me, right, I will promise to bless you and I will make some kind of a dynasty, a dynasty that is comparable to that which I promised David. I will give you a sure house. These were, I believe, real or genuine offers from God to Jeroboam. The first promise about kingship was going to happen no matter what. And that's why I've, I've used that term unconditional. But the second promise about kingship would not happen if Jeroboam responded with disobedience. So in that sense, there was something conditional about what the prophet revealed from God to Jeroboam. Everything that we read about Jeroboam in this part of chapter 12 confirms, confirms to us that he started his reign as king of Israel by rejecting that conditional promise from God. Right? God fulfills the unconditional one, right? He reigns quite a long time, but he didn't follow up on this offer God made to him, if you will obey me, I will bless you. In fact, I think Jeroboam perhaps thinks that all of his actions initially here in setting up false worship are justifiable. Here in verses 26 to 27, we are given divine insight into his mind, right? As he speaks to himself in his self-talk, these internal thoughts, and we learn that he is not trusting in the promise God gave to him, right? He's filled with fear. He's an insecure leader. And he thinks that he's going to be assassinated if things go wrong, that all of the people are going to go back to, notice he says, their king, 
It's as if he admits there, there's a slip of the tongue and he recognizes that all of these people in the ten tribes, their real king is Rehoboam. Something I had not thought of until I read this passage this past week, and I read this from another author, maybe Jeroboam remembered the failed kingship of Saul's son Ishbosheth, who tried to rule over ten tribes but failed, and what happened to him? He was assassinated, wasn't he? And so maybe he's thinking the same thing could happen to me. He would begin to realize that Jeroboam, because he would not trust in God, he cannot trust anyone at this point. He he reveals himself to be quite an insecure man, and he does not have faith to believe in God's promise. He is not convinced, apparently, that his own kingship is legitimate, even though God promised he would be king. Again, in verse 27, he refers to the people in his kingdom as their Lord, as Israel's Lord, referring to to Rehoboam. That's quite telling. And notice that his fear for his own survival is connected to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, last Sunday evening, our brother Ray spoke to us about the disciples on the boat caught in a storm. And he talked to us about, right, trusting Jesus or living in a state of fear. And he did remind us that when we fall into fear, we do dumb things. This is going to be played out before our very eyes here in the life of Jeroboam. And there's more to come. It's not all going to be done this week. If a person will not trust in the Lord, what other option do you have? You have to trust in something in creation, yourself or someone else. I don't see any other way to explain it. He tries to find security by trusting in his own thinking. Jeroboam refuses the prophetic vision of Jerusalem as the place of worship, the center of worship for the people of God, for Israel at that time. Deuteronomy is very clear that God would choose the place that his name would be worshipped. And through David, we reveal, it's revealed to us that Jerusalem was God's choice. That was the only authorized central place of worship for the people of God in the Old Testament. How does Jeroboam not know this? Well, we know that he lacks faith. Does he simply just want to survive? Is that why he's talking to himself? In his fear that he will be killed, he will be assassinated, and all of the people will return back to Jeroboam. It's clear that he fears, right? He fears the people more than God. Jeroboam refused to trust God's promise that was personally delivered to him through God's prophet, and he turns out to be a religious innovator. He takes Israel back into idolatry. For Jeroboam, religion was for the purpose of political survival and stability. Our second thought here, Jeroboam led Israel away from God. His quote-unquote uniting of Israel served to separate them even further from God and further from their brethren down in Judah. Did Jeroboam invent a system of false worship? That's a question as we look at verse 28. I'll read it and then we'll think about that question. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now the question did Jeroboam 
invent a system of false worship. It can be answered quite easily, but I want us to think about something before we give a clear answer to that. There are some Bible scholars, commentators, evangelicals, that will partially defend some of the things Jeroboam did. I'm not necessarily following them, but I don't know that I can refute completely all of the things they're saying. And we should be at least, I'm just making you aware of this. This doesn't mean that I think that Jeroboam did some good things here. One of the examples of this, in a particular view of this, is when they notice that he places these two golden calves right in certain locations some people would say that that wasn't meant to be an idol. That was meant to be a pedestal for the invisible Yahweh to be present on. Right? And there's other arguments like, well, down in Israel, right, in the, in the Jerusalem temple, they have the Ark of the Covenant. That also has images, and that's in this. And I, I don't know if, if Jeroboam built shrines around these idols. I don't know if they were visible for all people to see. Another thought for us to think about that I don't agree with, but you will read sometimes in commentaries, people will say, wait, wait, wait a minute here. This author is from the southern kingdom. This is like the Palestinian and Hamas critiquing each other, right? There's no way Jeroboam is going to get a fair description because it's being written by the other side, the opposing side. Now, I don't agree with that, but at least we should stop and pause. There, there is an argument that would suggest that he was making pedestals, not idols, but the problem is the Bible repeatedly characterizes these as idols, not pedestals. And it says that it's sinful. It says it here and it says it in other parts of Second Kings. Again, verse 26, Jeroboam said in his heart, we read that, this self-talk, and Davis reminds us, he says, the last time we heard of someone and about their heart and what was going on was in chapter 11 at the beginning, and it was a description of Solomon's apostasy. And so is this good when we hear Jeroboam, where the author tells us this is what he was thinking in his heart? Jeroboam's self-heart talk is very similar to Solomon's. Both are turning away from the Lord and both are falling into idolatry. Solomon already did it. Now Jeroboam is following. Let's not give Jeroboam credit for inventing something new because he's not inventing something new. He's just repeating old errors. False worship is never anything new. It's always right a counterfeit of that which is true. That which is false as opposed to that which is true means that that which is false is in reality a distortion of that which is true. That means that that which is false can only counterfeit or fake mimic the truth revealed by God. Jeroboam did not fall into false worship and he did not invent anything new in the process. He did fall into false worship, but he doesn't invent anything new. He had just come from Egypt where they had a lot of idols, and he was perhaps familiar with some of that. I don't know how long he was there. He was also familiar with the Canaanite false religion of Baal worship. And third, what he said about these bulls is almost identical to what Aaron said in Exodus 32. There is an eerie connection and a parallel between the words of Jeroboam, here are your gods, to what Aaron said back there in Exodus 32 when Moses was up on the mountain. 
He is a new Aaron leading God's people into idolatry. It's remarkable, the parallel there. So no, he does not invent a completely new system of worship. He is simply repeating old errors that the Bible clearly condemns. Jeroboam's new form of worship is simply a falling back into the old sin of idolatry and false worship. His liturgical creativity, his innovations, they are a damnable departure of the truth that God had revealed on how he should be worshipped. Maybe he thought, I'm just simply making some adaptions. I'm adding a few elements here. Never mind the fact that they are clearly in conflict with the commands that was revealed to Moses in, in the law. For Jeroboam, religion was merely a useful tool for political purposes. And I think several commentators kind of picked up on that note. Lathart says, Jeroboam is a sociologist of religion professor. He would have been deeply enamored with a modern one, not modern to us, uh, with Emil Durkheim's notion that society is a true object of worship. And if you know anything about that guy, look him up. This is what Jeroboam is doing. Lathart's witty statement comparing Jeroboam's thinking to Professor Durkheim's teaching is filled with biting sarcasm because both men reject the true worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Today, Jeroboam would be a fine example of a professor in a humanities department at a state university teaching the sociology of religion or anthropology. Professor Jeroboam's insights into religious understanding within a people group might even earn him getting promoted to become the department chairperson of the sociology department at the university. Surely he would have been a tenured professor and most likely a successfully published author all with high praise for his incisive insight into the knowledge of religions and culture. And he would probably would have been invited by Jordan Peterson to do a speaking tour. Right? That's what's going on here in the modern way of thinking. The author of Kings does not share that estimation of Jeroboam. He describes Jeroboam's liturgical innovations as terrible, dirty political tricks that are involving idolatry. God's sure word to Jeroboam by the prophet Ahijah was not enough for Jeroboam, was it? And so Jeroboam thought he could make something more certain than God's word, golden calves. And this led Dale Ralph Davis to make this statement, quote, Jeroboam then turns away from orthodoxy, not because it is no longer true, but because it is no longer useful. But then Davis applies this logic to himself and he says, I have, no, I, I have not the authority to use religion as blatantly as he did, yet basically and subtly I share his sin. Security is my God. I am frequently quite happy to be a disciple of Jeroboam, walking by logic and not by faith, by calculations and not by commitment. I mean, we saw a little bit of that with the disciples in the boat last week. Jeroboam's religion is the religion of many of our politicians in our country today. They use religion and it's useful to get them elected. Why did he place the golden bulls at Bethel and Dan? Verse 29 tells us he set one in Bethel right near in the south, near the border of Judah, and the other way in the north up in Dan. 
The question as to why Jeroboam placed the golden calves in these locations, it's an interesting one. I mean, you would think that, hey, don't you put your main temples in the capital? I mean, he doesn't do that. He's not doing what they're doing in Israel. He didn't do what David did. But of course, putting it in the south makes a little bit of sense there because he's trying to prevent the people in the ten tribes from going down to worship, true worship in Jerusalem, right? At the temple. He doesn't want them to go down there because he's fearful if they go down there, they're going to begin to understand that we belong to Judah. That's the real king that we belong to, the anointed of the Lord, and they're going to forsake Jeroboam. And so it is kind of strange the way he does this, an idol in the south and an idol in the north. It wasn't just for convenience, although that's probably part of it. Davis believes that the Hebrew translation of a particular word here is best understood in the modern New Jerusalem publication society. And he says, here's the gist of of how he would translate this. You have chosen a new king, now choose new places of worship. We don't go to Jerusalem anymore. We're a new kingdom. We're going to have our own, our own worship where we want to place it. Imagine if you were a faithful Israelite living in those 10 geographical tribal areas, how difficult it would be for your life spiritually to live as a faithful follower of the Lord, the God of Israel. Just think of the things that you would have to go through to go down three times a year to Jerusalem when everyone in the kingdom is saying, don't go down there. We have our own stuff right here. Aren't, aren't we good enough? Do you have to go to another country to worship? Do you not love your local people? You could imagine all of the arguments that could have come up to discourage people from serving, fearing, and loving the Lord revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jeroboam's second innovation here was the establishment of worship centers at the northern end of the country in Dan and the southern part of the country in Bethel. The, the, the Dan location is still a head-scratcher for me because I don't know why he did it so far in the north. There's, there's something in the book of Judges where right, there was, that was a center of false worship. Maybe that was why he did it. Maybe he, they'll accept it. I don't know. The mention of the people going in, in procession to the altar at Dan uh, here in verse 30 may indicate that Jeroboam himself, right, he was there at at least the altar to dedicate in Bethel. I don't know if he went all the way to Dan for that one. But all of this was contrary to that which God revealed to Moses. It was all sinful. It was all a false religion. I think it's quite clear, as I mentioned earlier, in the Old Testament, there was to be only one place of centralized worship. I suppose we could argue that for the new as well. And there was to be no images. The calf was the pedestal of the God of the Baal of the Phoenicians, right? The people that lived in Canaan. And it resembled too closely what they were doing. That's another reason why this was probably a terrible idea. But unfortunately, what Jeroboam did in in Israel, the northern kingdom, it becomes the characteristic sin of all of the kings practically that followed him. They all do the same thing. And here's an overview that I'll try to summarize something that Waltke says about the rest of the book of Kings and the rest of Old Testament history. He says the prophets contend that the kings of the north, as well as of Judah, they are subject to the revelation God gave to Moses. That's how they're graded, right, in their life. And that included specific regulations about how they worship. 
Since there is only one God, there can only be one central place, a a liturgical place of worship. Again, Deuteronomy 12 is very clear about that. More than one sanctuary at this time suggests that there is more than one God. And Waltke believes that that actually is a re-imaging of God by building a rival sanctuary. You wouldn't even build a true sanctuary to rival Jerusalem at that point, would you? 2 Kings 17 is a devastating chapter near the end of the book of Kings that has a, a description of all of these things and it gives an assessment. And we read there the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, that that's what characterized the kings and the people of Israel that followed in historically. Jeroboam changes from being that initial Moses-like deliverer to an Aaron-like idolater, and he leads the nation into idolatry. Jeroboam's image of the Lord by a bull implies that the Lord is just another fertility god and expects all of the common fertility practices. The bull was too close to the fertility religion of Baal to be safe. That's one reason why he should have never done that. And there's at least one king that outdoes Jeroboam, and it's Ahab. He totally forsakes the Lord in worships with state-sponsored paganism in Israel. In the northern kingdom, there is a line of unbroken apostasy and false worship, and that is why they are exiled by God. He throws them out of the land, just as God exiled Adam and Eve in the very beginning. Israel's making the golden calf after this, their exodus from Egypt. It foreshadows Jeroboam's apostasy in this chapter. There are other interesting... I mean, Jeroboam named his two sons after Aaron's sons. It's almost like he, he has great respect for Aaron. And what was he thinking when he did this? Why is false worship often so subtle? I don't have a ton of applications tonight, but there could be in different things that I've read, you know, there, we, we, we could take this in multiple directions about the problems of false worship and how it's often very, very subtle. One simple answer is this. False religions and false worship often use just enough of the Bible to make it sound legitimate, to make it sound genuine, to make it sound as if they too are honoring the Lord. But we know that they always add things, don't they? And they often also take away things. They add things God says you shouldn't add, and they take away things that God says you shouldn't tamper with. In verses 30 through 33, we read this, Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples in high places and appointed priests from among all the peoples, people who were not of the Levites, And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel, and went up to the altar to make offerings. Jeroboam introduces new elements in the northern kingdom Israel's worship. 
And one author describes him as kind of like an Aaron restorationist. That's not a compliment. He's like Solomon. He's making innovations he should have never, ever done. Certainly he would have justified all of it, wouldn't he? We're still worshiping the Lord. We're not any different than the people down south. We are also worshiping Yahweh. He understood the community power, the community building power of ritual as again, many modern politicians do. And he exploited it. He manipulated religion for the sake of his political cohesion of the people. He was fearful it was going to all fall apart, wasn't he? Jeroboam ordained priests that were not Levitical. He apparently excludes all of the Levitical priests. I don't know if he drove a lot of them out from from the northern tribal areas and said, go back to Jerusalem, but he he wouldn't pick the Levitical priest. He picked his own priest. Levites could not serve in his man-made religious temple. I mean, he knows what he's doing, doesn't he? He shifted the time. Not just people, places, but time. Instead of following what God said to go to Jerusalem in the seventh month, right, on this particular day, he switched it to the eighth month. And some people believe, well, because the harvest was a little bit later up there. That was supposed to be a significant, right, the gathering of booths or tabernacles. That was a very important reminder that God provided for the crops. It also pointed forward that God was gathering his people, and it pointed ultimately to the final eschatological gathering at the final judgment an agricultural festival, a spiritual festival, what was supposed to be a joyful festival of how God brought them out of Egypt, he changed the date. He's not just tinkering here or making some minor adjustments. He is creating false worship in Israel. He probably made his man-made false worship to appear to be just as legitimate as the temple worship in Jerusalem, but it was a damnable departure. He's leading people to hell along with himself. Verse 33 ends with another kind of damning description. Again, he devised this from his own heart. We we began with his self-talk and we end with self-talk. There's nothing here about he accepts God's revelation and he follows God's revelation in worship. It's all the opposite. And again, when when Ray spoke to us last week from Luke 8, he talked to us about the dangers of giving into fear instead of trusting in Jesus Christ when we have trials in our life. Jeroboam does have a particular trial. He won't follow God. He won't trust the promise of God. And so he's going to trust in himself. And when Brian was reading the scripture verses this morning about pride from Proverbs, my eyes fell in your verse that he read, Proverbs 29, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. And that is a description of Jeroboam, isn't it? Jeroboam was a great fool. Just as Solomon for, for a time or whatever, I don't know how long, he too became a great fool. Jeroboam changed the place of worship. It was no longer in Jerusalem. He actually probably discouraged people from going to the place where God had wanted them to serve. Second, he changed the time for celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Third, he changed the priesthood. And fourth, I don't know if you caught this, he approved apparently of adding all kinds of high places to be built and constructed all throughout the land. 
In those high places, they had been a snare to Israel in the past, and they will be a terrible snare to the people in the future. Jeroboam led Israel into what we would call syncretistic worship. I mean, you look at 2 Kings 17, and it's quite clear there that the people of God in Israel, they thought, I can worship God and Baal and be fine at the same time. It's stated there multiple times. It's kind of shocking to actually read this is happening with God's people. We can be true to God as well as the local Canaanite fertility customs and rites of Baalism. From the beginning of his reign, he led Israel into violating the first and the second commandments. And most likely all the while thinking they could worship both the Lord God and other gods. Again, 2 Kings 17 tells us this is exactly what they thought that they could do. All of that, again, was a, uh, an example of a damnable departure from true worship. In 2 Kings 17.21, we read about this, who caused Israel to commit a great sin. Now, as we wrap up this evening, Davis makes an interesting observation. He says that in verse uh, 28, we, we read this word about he made. And he says, when you come down to verses 31 through 33, that verse he made appears eight times. And it's not about God revealed. It's like he made, he made, he made. It's the essence, right, of man-made religion. And perhaps that is a warning to all of us as we think about our own worship that we, by the grace of God, do not want to fall into false worship. What the prophets envisioned was perhaps only for a time the division. It became much longer than they ever expected, especially those early prophets. Jeremiah 30, Ezekiel 34 may indicate that. Jeroboam, by his rival cult, dashes their hopes. Waltke says their hope for a unified kingdom is finally and only fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ and his church. Ephesians 4.4 When the Father's greatest revelation was given to this world, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus was accused of being a Jeroboam, wasn't he? When the true king had finally come, the great king, the one that would rule forever and ever, he was accused of being one who would lead Israel away from the revelation God gave to Moses. Those who resisted the teaching of Jesus concluded that he was a false teacher, leading Israel into a damnable departure from the true faith and true worship. Some in Israel would have probably thought that Jesus was far worse than Jeroboam. In Mark 2, when Jesus healed the paralyzed man, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And that set them off, didn't it? Only God can forgive sin, and they're right. But they thought Jesus was just a mere man, an uneducated peasant, perhaps. They began to think that this Jesus is a blasphemer. He is far worse than Jeroboam. He's going to be in a hotter flame of hell than Jeroboam. And there are other examples. Another one before we close in John 7-8. through 8, Jesus said a lot of interesting things there. In John 8, an intense discussion, we could say even a debate occurs. And they accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan. They accuse Him of being possessed by a demon. The religious leaders who condemned Jesus, the true King of God's people, then picked up stones, whether that was literal or symbolic, symbolic and they were ready to stone Him. He is a blasphemer. 
But early in John's Gospel, in chapter 4, we read and hear Jesus speak to a Samaritan woman about the place of true worship. Remember that? That's a beautiful passage. As they're debating about which mountain is true, and Jesus says, a time is coming, and it's already here, when those who worship the Father, true worshipers, will worship the Father in the Spirit and the truth. True worship always centers upon Jesus Christ, incarnate, the Word made flesh. He is the God-man. And that's the first question I would ask about anyone about, well, what do they believe? What do they believe about Jesus? And then from there, what do they believe about the gospel? And that is a, a good way to remind us that God has saved us by His grace, and we confess that we believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. True worship. What do you say about Jesus? And what do you say about salvation? Thank God that in His grace He has brought us into this fellowship, this communion with Him because of His Son. Father in heaven, we thank You for again a difficult portion of the Old Testament, a lot of discouragement as we see one of the leaders that You made a promise to reject part of that promise. Lord, as Jeroboam decided he didn't want to obey You, he had no interest in trusting You. And Lord, it led to terrible things, not only in his life, but in the life of your people of old. And Father, we pray that tonight as we remember uh, who Jesus Christ, your Son, is and his coming and what he has done for us, we pray, Lord, that you would keep us in true worship all the days of our life. Lord, help us never to believe in a different Jesus and help us to never believe in a different gospel. Lord, keep us faithful to your word, whatever the cost. We know, Lord, you promised to be with us. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us again with the coming of your son, Jesus Christ, who was no Jeroboam. But Lord, he is and was a perfect king to come who gave his life so that we may be reconciled to you and actually live in this life forever of growing in true worship to you. Lord, we're thankful for your grace and we pray that you would help us to trust in you this week. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.